Today we're looking at the book of Revelation. Some of you are groaning inwardly right now. Some, some of you, I, I think one or two, two of you groaned outwardly. Thinking, oh no, we talk about times and dates and charts and graphs and all these speculative things and controversies and we're just going to get in big arguments. Some of you are leaning forward. You got really excited. You just pulled a slip of paper out of the back of your Bible. It has all of your charts and graphs on it. And you are very excited to see if I agree with you or if I'm wrong. That's kind of what you're looking at. And as I did many years ago when I preached a sermon series on the book of Revelation, I will start this way. You will both be disappointed. The more I study the book of Revelation, the more I am firmly convinced that those charts and graphs are completely missing the point of the book of Revelation. So many Christians have gotten caught up in arguments over order of end times events and what those events are, and they miss the point of what the book of Revelation is about. We are in a sermon series called Focal Point. This isn't a Revelation sermon series, but we're walking through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and guess where we are? We are at Revelation. This is the second to last sermon in this sermon series. Uh, Next week, we actually have a guest speaker. Uh, Our missionary to China, Mark Borisuk, will be here to speak to us. Looking forward to that. And then we will conclude the Focal Point series the Sunday after that. So today, what I'd like to do is go through the first 20 chapters of Revelation. That's right. Next week, or I'm sorry, two weeks then, Uh, We are going to just look at the last two chapters and use that to tie in the rest of the sermon series. But the point of the sermon series, focal point, is that Jesus Christ is the focal point of all Scripture. All Scripture in the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus Christ. All Scripture in the New Testament points to the life, ministry, cross, and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is no uh, is, is right in line with that. It is no exception to that point. In fact, in many ways, when we come to the book of Revelation, what we are going to see if we're willing to truly listen to it on its own terms is an immense picture of the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over the past, the present, and the future. He is sovereign over all time. He is sovereign over all circumstances. And so when we read the book of Revelation, rather than asking God, help us to see clearly what's going to happen in the future, in the end times, our prayer needs to be, help us to see clearly your son, Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over those things. So we need to start by looking at this important truth that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all time and over all circumstances. Revelation falls right in line with a major theme throughout all scripture, which is the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. And specifically in Revelation, we are focused into Jesus Christ, who is reigning in heaven and whose reign is coming to and breaking into this world. And the picture of Jesus in Revelation is of a victorious conquering king who rules over all places throughout all times. And so to understand the the picture of Jesus' sovereignty in Revelation, I just want to give you a glimpse walking through some of these chapters. In chapter 1, there are Old Testament terms that should only ever have been applied to God Almighty, 
that are applied to Jesus Christ. Because he is God, ruling over all things. He is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That phrase, that name, Alpha and the Omega, emphasizes his authority from the very beginning to the very end. Chapters 2 and 3, we have these letters to the seven churches. We're going to look at them briefly. But we have a picture of Jesus who knows everything that those believers are going through, every struggle they're experiencing. And he is walking in their presence. He is sovereign and Lord over them and everything that they're going through. In chapter 5, he's called the Lion of Judah, and then he is seen to be the sacrificial lamb, our king who died in our place, giving his life on our behalf that we might be saved. And then he is introduced as the only one qualified to open the judgments upon the world. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see time after time after time, the armies of the world, the nations of the world, the powers of the world, both physical and spiritual, rise up against Jesus Christ. And over and over again, we see that nothing can stand against our King Jesus. In chapter 19, in fact, all the armies of the world gather to defeat Christ and his followers. And Jesus speaks and the battle is over. And he is victorious. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again, conquering all sin, has saved the world, is bring his judgment to cleanse the world, and then he comes to dwell among his people forever and ever. And John ends this amazing book about all these hardships that God's people are going to go through, all the difficulties leading up to the end, a book that includes a lot of judgment, a lot of harsh judgment, but John concludes his book and cries out, come Lord Jesus. Because he sees the absolute power and authority of Jesus Christ and he wants that to come and reign and rule on this earth forever. Why? Because God has always had a plan from Genesis to Revelation, for Jesus Christ, his son, to rule over this earth forever and ever. The picture of Jesus Christ in Revelation is of a powerful king. And we throw that word sovereign around. But it is an important word because it means to have absolute power and absolute authority. And there's this Picture these images throughout Revelation of all these world's kingdoms that the, the Christians of that time, and we still struggle with this today, we look at our world and we think, oh, it's so powerful. How am I going to live in this? How am I going to survive through this? But the picture over and over again is that Jesus is more powerful. In fact, Revelation seventeen fourteen says, they will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords. King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. How can we have that picture of Jesus? How can we look at everything going on in the world and still hold on to the truth? My king, Jesus, is greater, and he is sovereign over all these things. It's because we must accept a biblical view of Jesus Christ and interpret the world and the world's events through that view. Our King Jesus is sovereign. We use that phrase so often of 
kings in the world today. We live in a society here in America that this doesn't really apply. We always want to limit power, and rightly so. But, but in the older days, the idea of a sovereign king was one who ruled and had absolute authority. He should listen to others, but he could make his own choices. But the truth is, earthly kings were never totally sovereign. History is littered with kingdoms that were overthrown by their people and kings that were ripped off their thrones because they didn't actually have the ultimate power they thought that they did. But God is absolutely sovereign. He does have a plan for all things. He does know, according to Scripture, all things that go on. He does have power over all things. Therefore, only God is capable, able, powerful enough to carry out his plan for all things. Now, we need to be careful here. This does not mean that God causes every bad thing in the world. In God's sovereignty... He is aware of and has control over all things. But knowing all things and knowing things that will happen, there are times that God allows things to happen, refuses to stop them from happening, because he knows in his perfect plan and will, he will use those to carry out his will. God's sovereignty is greater than our personal freedom and choices. Always, forever, in Scripture, Period. Our freedom operates under the authority of God's sovereignty. But he does allow us to make choices. And we are responsible for the choices that we make. And so as we look at King Jesus and understanding that Jesus is God, he shares the sovereignty of God over all things, and then we understand the plan throughout Scripture for God to give Jesus the kingdoms of this world to rule over, we begin to get a picture of Jesus being sovereign over all time and all circumstances. Ephesians 1, 19 and 21 talks about God's power and his plan for Jesus to rule. And I love the language here. We're kind of jumping into the middle here. But it says, and his, and that's talking about God the Father, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And listen to this description of Christ. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Anything missing there? Any little footnote that we need to say, well, yeah, but Jesus isn't actually powerful over this. No, these words, this verse, this passage leaves nothing else, nothing out. Jesus is sovereign over all things. And the book of Revelation displays the sovereign power of Jesus over all time and all events. Why? Why start with this deep theological meaty topic when we're talking about the end times? Why not just jump right into that? Because the churches of the day that John is writing this were struggling. Their world was falling apart. The Roman Empire was beginning to crumble. Culture and society was increasingly turning against the Christians, judging them, forcing them to come in line with all of this cultural pressure. And the Christians were struggling. How do they keep holding on to Jesus as their world crumbled and changed around them? 
And the answer in the book of Revelation is to trust in King Jesus, who is sovereign over all things. So I want to look at how throughout the book of Revelation we see that Jesus is sovereign over all time and all places. And let's start where Revelation starts with Jesus being sovereign over the present. Normally we would start at the past. We'll get there. But the book of Revelation starts with the present. Now, not our present. It starts with their present. The book of Revelation, starting in chapter 2, has letters to seven churches. A lot of debate about this. As far as I can tell, the simplest reading of this, these were real churches in the time that John wrote this that needed to hear these things. Now, yes, we still struggle with things they went through. The church throughout the ages has struggled with the things these churches went through. So it applies to us. But they were struggling. To put this in context, Jesus Christ had died on the cross and ascended back up into heaven, giving the Great Commission. And from that time until John writing this, we're looking at between 30 and 50 years have gone by. 30 to 50 years of the church saying, when is Jesus coming back? 30 to 50 years of the church holding on and new generations being born and being brought up in the church. And they're saying, what now? How do we live now? In some places at this time, Christians were being persecuted and killed for what they believe. And in other places, it was obvious that that was going to start happening more and more. The culture of their day would allow people to believe just about anything. This was the Roman rule. You could believe anything. All the local people group could believe whatever they wanted. They were very free and open. As long as you never say that your way is the only way. And as long as you accept certain things that are true, even if it's contrary to what you believe. And as long as you also accepted that the Roman emperor was a god and ruled most high and you were willing to worship him, well, then you could also worship anything else. Friends, it's not all that different. And and so we need this picture of Jesus in the church today. We need this picture of Jesus in the world today. I'm not going to look at each of the seven letters. But for each, there is this presentation of who Jesus is and his power and authority over that local church. And at the beginning, in chapter 1, we're given this image of Jesus walking among these seven lampstands, which represent the churches. And I love that picture. He's there. He's involved. He knows what's going on. And I think in our hearts, we feel the words of the psalmist crying out, Where are you? Do you not see this? And King Jesus is in heaven saying, I see it. I know. And I'm still carrying out my plan. But we also see that he has complete authority over the church. He talks about, hold on to truth. Hold on to the gospel. But if you don't, I will remove your lampstand from my presence. And he's talking about churches, local churches. And I think we've all seen churches that have closed their doors for various reasons. Sometimes, Churches need to close their doors because they've let go of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're no longer a church. Christ is on the outside looking in. 
Jesus has authority over the church. And for each of these seven churches, there's a specific description of what they're going through and how Jesus' power, sovereign, love, and authority applies to their situation. But they are feeling these pressures of the culture, and Jesus constantly talks about the overcomer. And it's saying to us and to them, hold on. I know it's hard. Keep trusting. And I really believe that if we can understand these first, or rather the second and third chapter of Revelation, the rest of the book of Revelation is written as a love letter to these seven churches who are struggling. And it is the answer to the question, how can we keep going? And the way that Jesus answers the question here by giving this to John is by saying, I want to give you a picture of the future so you know King Jesus is in control. This is why Revelation applies to us. Sure, we might not be one of these seven churches, but we are in a very similar situation and we're looking to the future with fear and anxiety because we're looking at the present with fear and anxiety and we see it getting worse and we're wondering, what do we do? And the book of Revelation says, here's what you need to do. You need to keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, sovereign over past, present, and future. But now, before we get to the future, which is definitely the bulk of the book of Revelation, we need to briefly look at how Revelation portrays Jesus as sovereign over the past. Open up with me to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at a couple verses here. Revelation, over and over and over again throughout the book of Revelation, Words straight out of the Old Testament, images, descriptions, phrases that were rich with Old Testament meaning are talked about and applied to Jesus Christ. Now, why? Why would Jesus be represented in this way? Because Jesus, as he gives this to John, and John, as he writes it to the church, they want everybody to understand this is what God has been talking about all along. Jesus is the focal point of all of Scripture. But there's one key past event that is really focused on in the book of Revelation that I think is so helpful to interpret all of Revelation. And it's seen in chapter 5. John gives us throughout the book, he is invited up into the throne room of heaven and he sees things and he's writing them down. And one of the things that he sees in chapter 5 is this scroll is brought out. And the implication throughout the rest of the book of Revelation is that this scroll contains God's judgment on the world. And his plan for how he's going to get from this messed up world to the perfect eternal state when God is dwelling with his people without sin at all. And the question is, how do we get from here to there? And who is worthy to carry that out? In fact, there's a problem. The scroll is brought out and people say, who is worthy? And none none can be found. And John starts weeping. He wants the judgment of God to be carried out. He wants the plan of God to be carried out. Listen to the words. Let me read verses 1 through 4. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven 
or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. I think sometimes we get so caught up in our world here and now in the situations of our life that we lose track of God's big plan. And here John is confronted with God has a plan. It is a great plan, a perfect plan, and it's going to be carried out. But there's this ringing question. Who has the power to do it? Who has the right to do it? John sees the suffering of his fellow believers. Sees the world turning against them once justice. He says, who? And then we come to Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Where does this word come from? Where does this phrase, the tribe of Judah, the lion of Judah, it's right out of the Old Testament, prophesied throughout the Old Testament. A king would come to reign on David's throne to fulfill God's promises to the Jewish people of the Old Testament. These things will be fulfilled. How can that happen? Over thousands of years, how can this still be fulfilled? Because Jesus is present over the past, or he's sovereign over the past. Everything that has happened has happened under his divine plan and authority. But then he goes on. Verse 6, this one who is announced as the lion of the tribe of Judah, John turns and he says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And those images there, horns and eyes, those meant things to the Jewish people about his authority and his ability to see all things. But what I want to focus on is this beautiful picture. Here is our king and he turns and he sees a lamb that looks like it has been slain. Why would Jesus appear as a lamb who looks like it had been put to death? Because he did. He was put to death. He went to the cross to pay the price for our sins and he rose from the dead. And so here at the beginning of of kind of the future aspect of Revelation, we're reminded of Christ's sovereignty over the past. He went to the cross and that is what qualifies him to carry these things out. How often do we share things with our friends about what should happen in the world, where things are going? And and so often the response is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to say those things? How come you think your way is right? And that's a valid question about us. Who do we think we are? But we come to Jesus Christ and it's still a good question. Who do you think you are? I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I am the one who died and rose again. So the answer to the question, how dare Jesus announce and bring forth the judgments of God in this world is because he is the one who has provided salvation through the cross. It's such a beautiful picture and a powerful picture of God's sovereignty and Christ's sovereignty over everything that has happened in the past. So before John looks ahead to the future, he briefly in this passage looks back to the past to the Old Testament, and to the cross. And now we come to the bulk of the book of Revelation. 
The rest of Revelation is about this scroll that is introduced in chapter 5. This scroll is going to be opened up. There are seven different seals that are opened on the scroll. The seventh seal introduces another group of judgments, the seven trumpet judgments. The last trumpet judgment introduces seven more judgments, the bowl judgments. What I want you to hear, if you forget all that, is very simply this. This scroll contains it all. All of it. The rest of what's going to happen before Christ's kingdom comes on this earth is contained in this scroll. And as they are read and introduced, these things are happening in the world. Some of these things are judgments, but often these judgments, and we often think, oh, God's pouring out his anger, he's pouring out his wrath. But a lot of the judgments, especially initially, is God simply allowing sinful humanity to do sinful humanity things and experience the consequences of it. In fact, often the judges or the judgments come because God pulls back his restraining hand on things that sinful humanity wants to do. That's an interesting thing. Sometimes God's judgment comes from allowing us to get exactly what we want. The seven seals are opened, and then there are seven trumpets that sound With each trumpet, things get worse and worse. When the seventh judgment, uh, the seventh trumpet is blown, we're introduced to the seven bowls of God's wrath. And this is where we get into the thick of the book and we get very confused. And we start thinking, how do I make sense of this? If only there was something that would explain some time that we saw trumpets and bowls and things being poured out in the presence of God, if only there was some thread to tie all of this together. And there is. God introduced it many, many years ago, all the way back in the Exodus, when he met with his people on Mount Sinai, and he said, here's how to build a tabernacle, and here's what you're to do in that tabernacle. He has prepared the earth for this moment. You see, there's some unique details here. The king is reigning on his throne. But in this throne room, we have certain lampstands that are being pointed out. There's certain incense that is being uh, burnt. And if we turn to chapter 8, when the last seal is open and the the trumpet judgments are announced, we read this. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. So now we're in the throne room of God and there's an altar? He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. What is going on here? Why does God have an altar? Why is there smoke in the throne room? We have something to perfectly explain this. In Leviticus chapter 16 the Israelites were commanded to do what was called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was that day once a year where the temple and the tabernacle, which was God's dwelling place among his people, was purified from the sins of his people so that God's holy presence could dwell with them. If we look at Leviticus chapter 16, Verse 12, we have the the presence of God and the Holy of Holies and the high priest was commanded to burn incense. 
before going in. So the smoke would rise up before the presence of the Lord and he could be there in that room without seeing the perfect holy presence of the Lord and be struck dead. Remember I said this was the beginning of the seven trumpet judgments? Did you know that there was a festival leading up to the Day of Atonement? It's called the Festival of the Trumpets. And on the Day of Atonement, the last trumpet sounded. And these trumpets were calls to repentance. They were proclamations of atonement. And the Day of Atonement in Jewish culture was this day of cleansing from sin. It was also a day of repentance, but in their culture it had another name. It was also known as the Day of Judgment. Isn't that interesting? See, atonement means to be saved from your sins, to be purified from your sins. Judgment means to be punished for your sins. And they saw these two things together. It's like you can either have it one way or the other. You can either be atoned for your sins and saved from them, or you will be judged for them. So in the Old Testament, trumpets were sounded, leading to incense being burned so that the blood of a sacrifice, which was collected in a golden bowl, could be carried into the holy presence of the Lord and poured out in his presence to cleanse the tabernacle of sin. I know some of you right now, your eyes are glazing over. Oh, this is just deep Old Testament stuff. I don't really care. How am I supposed to live today? God gave us this Old Testament stuff to help us understand his plan, and his purpose for all things. Look back at Revelation chapter 8. In verses 3 to 4, we see an angel in God's presence in the throne room take coals from an altar. And what does he do with those coals? Verse 5 says he hurled them to earth. On the day of atonement... The priest started outside the presence of God, brought coals into the presence of God to burn. Started outside the presence of God, sacrificed an animal, brought it inside the presence of God to pour it out. In Revelation, the process is reversed. In the presence of God, coals and incense are taken and they are brought to the earth. And later we'll see in the presence of God, bowls are filled and poured out on the earth. Why? Because God's glorious, perfect, holy presence and the full manifestation of his holy presence is coming to the earth to dwell forever. God is turning the earth into his perfect, holy dwelling place. That's what Revelation is all about. It is the purification of this world from all sin so that God's holy presence can dwell here. And the act that God's people in the Old Testament did over and over and over again prepared us for this moment. Turn with me to Revelation 15. In Revelation chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, we read this. After this, I looked and I saw heaven... I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Now now understand, you didn't open the inside of the temple or tabernacle. That was the Holy of Holies. That had to be separated. But throughout Revelation, there is this opening of the dwelling place of God. And it was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. What are those? Hold on, we'll get there. 
They were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Again, on the day of atonement, the blood was poured out inside the tabernacle. Here, these bowls are filled in the presence of God, in the heavenly tabernacle, and poured out on the earth. Why? Because the perfect heavenly presence of God doesn't need to be cleansed from sin. There's no sin there. But God's plan, ever since Genesis 1, was to live here with his people, purified from their sins, and that is what must take place in order for that to happen. This world must be cleansed of all sin. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth, and they are poured out on the earth. This is the day of atonement for the earth. This is the day of judgment for the earth. Because friends, as much as we long to be in God's presence forever and ever, if the sin of the world is not dealt with and removed, that eternity would not be heaven. It would be hell. Sin has to be removed for God's glorious, perfect presence to dwell with us forever and ever. And at the end of Revelation, turn with me to chapter 21. Because if if that's what's going on in Revelation, we would expect then that God's presence could dwell in this purified tabernacle. And that's exactly what happens in Revelation chapter 21. We read, a voice cries out, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Come, Lord Jesus. We want that, don't we? Isn't there something in the heart of all humanity that says, I'm done with mourning, I'm done with crying, I'm done with sickness, I'm done with pain. We all want this. What Revelation says is that that's exactly God's plan. But to get there, sin must be dealt with and removed. And the only one who is possibly qualified to carry that out and to judge the world in that way, the only one able to open the scroll, sound the trumpets, pour out the cleansing judgment of God on the world is King Jesus, sovereign over all things. He is the only one. And here's why. Revelation makes very clear in this day when God's judgment is being poured out, those who are still in their sin will be cleansed from the world along with all sin. That's what eternity in hell is. And I know this makes us uncomfortable, but in order for God's perfect righteous presence to be here, sin must be removed. But what did Jesus do? 
He provided a way so that instead of God's judgment being poured out on you in that day, God's judgment was poured out on him on the cross. He took it for you and for me. Jesus Christ provided a way. So instead of standing in horror at the end of all days and realizing I am getting what I deserved, we will stand in joy and awe and wonder in that day and say, I deserve that, but Jesus took it for me. That's why he is qualified to carry out the judgment. Because he already provided another way. And he has held it out to each and every person over and over and over again. And all of history between the cross and the second coming of Jesus is a moment of mercy holding out the gospel. Today might be your moment of mercy. I've described to you what King Jesus is doing at the end of all times. I've also proclaimed to you that he died in your place, that you might be saved and cleansed from your sin. So that this is not judgment for you. It is joy in welcoming your king. But the question for you and for each one of us is, will we accept what Jesus did on our behalf? Because as long as we hold on to, no, I've got this and I'm going to do it myself, we are part of that world that will be washed away and cleansed from sin forever so that God's dwelling can come. That's not what I want for you, friends. It's not what I want for any of us. It's not what we want for our loved ones. And we have the message of Jesus Christ. But remember who this was written to? Seven struggling churches. Believers in Jesus Christ looking at their changing world and wondering, how can we stay Christians in this world? Seven struggling churches wondering what the future will hold, struggling to hold on to their faith. And Jesus comes with this big picture of who he is and what he's going to do. I imagine there's some of us here today that are struggling to hold on to faith. I imagine there are some that are looking at your own life and your own struggles and thinking, how can God do anything about it? I imagine there are some that are reading the news and looking at events of the world and saying, how can God do anything about this? It's totally out of control. It's not. King Jesus is sovereign over all things, past, present, and future. This is the point of the book of Revelation. And friends, if, if our understanding of the end times is more focused on what's going to happen and when it's going to happen, on all of our charts and graphs and whether we're pre this or post that or ah this or that, and our understanding of the end times is not consumed with the glory and sovereignty of Jesus Christ, then our understanding of the end times, no matter our view, is wrong. It's wrong. Worse, if we're so focused on our charts and graphs and how everything's going to work out, it is a distraction from the true meaning of Jesus Christ, which is the power and sovereign glory of Jesus Christ over all things. I love our statement of faith on end times here as a church. Jesus Christ in his own time, in his own way, is coming back. That's the point. I'm not saying we can't talk about it. Sure, we can talk about it. Sure, we can study. You can look at the charts and graphs. But understand as you do that, that's not the point. Jesus is the focal point of the book of Revelation. We need to hear this today. 
We need to hear that the path forward for followers of Jesus Christ is not to give in to the pressures of this world in order to keep the church alive. That is a lie from hell, and many Christians are buying into it. If we don't change this or give in, they think, the world's going to cease, or the, the church is going to cease to exist. No, because it's not the church or the world that keeps the church existing. It's our sovereign Lord and King Jesus Christ. We need to hold on to King Jesus. We need to follow King Jesus and worship King Jesus and keep on trusting King Jesus, come what may. Because that's where it all points to. That's where the book of Revelation ends. Christ reigning on this earth, which has been cleansed from sin, inhabited by his people, cleansed from sin through his death and resurrection. This picture of the end times is scary. But I want you to ask yourself, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because if you have, hear this, you have nothing to be afraid of in the end. I know that's hard. I'm not saying scary things won't happen. But we have nothing to ultimately fear. Second question. Are you living today, day by day, trusting in the power and authority and sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ? The pressures of this world, the labels of this world, the changing definitions of this world, the struggles of our economy and our political system, of your job, of your families, of our culture and your neighbors, all of it will disappear. It will not last forever. But Jesus Christ is king forever. So keep going. Keep trusting. Keep holding on to your King Jesus. Because every word from Genesis to Revelation will be fulfilled. And in two weeks, we're going to look at those final two chapters. And the glory of spending eternity with God, our Father, in his perfect, holy presence, unashamed and unafraid forever and ever. And we will conclude our study where we began it, with God dwelling with his people in a perfect place that he's created for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our small pictures of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for our big worries about this world. Forgive us for the way that we get those two things out of whack so often. And God, I thank you for the book of Revelation. Although it's been argued about by Christians throughout the centuries, I thank you that it paints a picture of your son, Jesus Christ, who rules eternity forever and ever, past, present, and future. I thank you that there is nothing that we fear that can stand against King Jesus. And God, I pray if there's anyone here today that has never accepted the salvation of Jesus Christ, the truth that he has taken their punishment on the cross that they might be cleansed of sin and live for you as your perfect holy people forever, I pray today would be the day or at the very least, that they would not just disappear after this service, but stick around and ask some good, hard questions. 
And Father, I pray for those that are struggling to put one foot in front of another and keep following Jesus. This world is tough, and it always has been. Help us to proclaim to our own hearts, my Jesus reigns on high. And he is powerfully present and sovereign over all things. And all things are working together to bring about the power of his perfect plan for this earth and for our lives. So Father, may we as a church be a demonstration of that faith in this world not wringing our hands in worry, not screaming and crying against the culture, but pointing to Jesus Christ in all things. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. Amen.